Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Where the Dark Corners Are. Hello, hello. I am Vina, and I am your Dark Travels hostess. Last week, we did a road trip with the panda, and we discussed some haunted campgrounds that you can visit. Well, tonight, as I'm joined by the polar bear, we are cracking our passports open and heading to Finland, where in 1960, there was a brutal slaying of three teenagers who were camping on the shores of Lake Bodum. So, Polar Bear, you ever been to Finland? I have not. No. Okay. <laughs> Just Ukraine and America? That's right. Okay. Well, we actually don't have any Scandinavian ties, so... Th- neither do I. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Poland is on my list, but that is not a Scandinavian country, as I'm sure you're aware of. Uh, but Denmark could potentially be in my future <laughs> for a variety of different reasons. Aside from the fact that Denmark is actually considered to be one of the most safest countries to travel to. I don't know if you know that, but, like, you don't pay attention? No, that's really interesting, though. Okay. Why Denmark? I don't know. Just nice people? That would be my assumption. (laughs) Safe people. Nice people. So, But we also have foreign exchange student there that we are still in contact with that we once hosted, you know, forever ago. But either way, if I ever go to Finland which is where we're obviously headed to, I think I would actually make an effort to check out the area where this horrible, quote-unquote, unsolved murders happen. So let's talk about the murders. On June 4th, 1960, four Finnish... Is it Finnish? 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 Finlanders. (laughs) Teenagers opted to do a little camping, and so they hopped on their motorcycles or mopeds and headed for the shores of Lake Bodum, which is near the city of Espo. The teenagers were two girls and two boys. The girls were 15, so we're talking Nila Bjorland. I would say Bjorkland. Bjorkland, thank you. And Anya McKee. Yeah. And then we have their 18-year-old boyfriends, Seppo Boisman and Niels Wilhelm Gustafsson? I think so. Okay. So, yeah, nothing like a little generational gap, but that was after World War II, so I <laughs> can't really blame them. I think we had that conversation on another podcast. Sure. The male shortage? <laughs> the male shortage. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> so, at this time, obviously, every, I'm pretty sure every male over 18, they have to do mandated military service. For this for, for their country. Right. They have to serve, I think, a certain amount of years. I don't know how Finland is, but for Ukraine, it was, I th- believe, two years. Once you're 18, you get out of high school, you go do your two years in the military, and then you resume with your regular life, unless you want to stick around. Okay. So, Seppo and Niels 
were both 18, and they were waiting to do their uh, mandated military service. Boisman was was working to be electrician while he was waiting to do his uh, mandated military service. So he was gearing himself up for a career, just... Yeah, you can't just put your life on pause and <laughs> right. for that. So what? Not for your country? Yeah. Okay. I mean, he was working towards a goal. Well, it's summertime. I mean, I don't yeah. know how. I mean, I'm sure they wanted to have a good time at the lake. So they went on this uh, couple's retreat. So they took their girlfriends out camping. So Boisman was involved with Anya, who was actually the youngest, having tur- turned 15 in April, which was around the time they had started dating. Okay. As for Nils, he had just started dating Myla three weeks prior to her 16th birthday. Okay. So her birthday was literally like two two days away from their terrible event that happened. Okay, their 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 sad terrible murder. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I also read that out of the group, Nils Gustafsson, he was considered kind of a greaser, fin- Finnish version of greaser. Where he never, he was never seen without his leather jacket, without his motorcycle. He was, he was the bad boy type. Okay. Breaking the rules. So he was, he would have been a T-bird <laughs> in America. Okay. Now on Saturday, they set up camp. They go fishing. They do some drinking. They do some campfire chats. And we know by Mila's uh, journal that they turned in about twelve in the morning at midnight. Though it would appear that. They were a bit restless, as she writes. Quote, fifth day, camping at Lake Bottom. Seppi and Nessie were drunk. Up at 2 a.m., Seppi was fishing. So the boys go fishing, and after a few hours, they return to camp, and they all, in theory, go to sleep. So basically, they just have a good camping day. Yeah. I mean, everything's said and done. They went fishing. They they did a little drinking, did the bonfire. They went to bed. And I'm assuming this is probably Mila's last journal entry because... Yeah, so... We know what happens next. Right. So sometime between 4 in the morning and 6 in the morning on Sunday, June 5th, a horrific assault occurs on the teenagers on their campsite. They were sleeping in their tent and it appeared... The ropes of the tent that were holding up the tent, they were cut, making the tent fall down. Okay. And the attacker stabbed them through the tent. He never he didn't go inside. He didn't pull them out. Uh, the tent had marks on it. He stabbed them through the tent, and he beat them with a blunt object Okay. that I believe was never identified. Okay. But probably, maybe, potentially, a rock. That w- Could mean, very well be. Okay. Could very well be. <laughs> Could be. Okay. Three out of the four teenagers ended up dying. So Seppo and his girlfriend Anya passed away inside the tent. Okay. Uh, covered in blood. Myla, however, she was found dead on top of the tent. Whether she was pulled out or how she got there, I don't know. But she was on top of the tent. And th- what's particular about her body was she was uh, naked from the waist down. Nils, her boyfriend, was found on top of the tent as well. He was the only one that survived the attack. Okay. He suffered a lot of hits with a blunt object. So it's actually my understanding that Nils, the boyfriend, 
he had one really serious cut on the cheek to the point where it was so deep you can actually see his teeth and a fractured jaw. But it's interesting that two of them are inside the tent. Right, as the other two are out. And the poor girl is missing her clothes. Yeah. Now, I think I read somewhere where she was kind of like super assaulted in the essence of she was really bashed in pretty mm-hmm. well. Yeah, her wounds were worse than all three of the other victims. It was almost like maybe it was personal or maybe it was... Like a crime of passion, perhaps? Yeah, crime of passion, maybe. Yeah. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think she even had, like, defense wounds. Like, she at some point in time was trying to uh, protect herself. I'm sure. I'm sure she did. Okay. Had. So these poor kids are just sleeping away, and all of a sudden someone comes at them kind of with this rage, it sounds like. So then what happens? How I mean... So they were discovered. There was actually contradicting facts on that. Okay. Uh, I found that they were discovered by a man and his uh, son that were swimming in the lake, and they were walking by, and they saw the crime scene and reported it to the police. However, I also read that it was a completely different person with a different name was jogging, you know, working out, passing by, and then witnessed the crime scene and called it in. Okay. Now, it was also my understanding that there were a couple of young bird watchers. Yeah, so so the bird watchers did not report the crime. Okay. There was two boys going in the woods. I mean, it's 1960. Right. Um, obviously, they're not going to be playing video games in the house. Right. Uh, <laughs> they're growing out and bird watching. Because that's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> they stumble upon the tent. I don't know if they were too far to see or if they were too scared to report. Okay. But they saw a tent, and they saw a blonde man leaving the tent. Okay, so you have a, a couple of people coming in a couple of different times, but the kids weren't concerned, but either the jogger or the swimmer was the one that said, oh, shit, something yeah, something's wrong. Something <laughs> bad happened <laughs> yeah. here. And, I mean, if the theories are, or if the facts are right, I'm really concerned about the son and his dad. Right. Uh, who discovered it first. And right. So, okay, so he goes and gets the police, and we're not talking cell phone yet, and the police kind of piece together this mess, basically. However, it sounds like they didn't do a very good job on taping off the crime scene. Okay. So they called in the military to help them search for the killer or evidence, and all the concerned citizens that showed up, because, I mean, it's starting to blow up. It's a hearsay, and everybody wants to come check it out. Right. The authorities didn't do a very good job taping off, or if any, job taping off the crime scene. So basically it becomes contaminated. It was contaminated, and any any hope of finding any evidence in that particular area was was gone. So we what are they looking for? Because, I mean, obviously they're looking for a weapon. Are they looking for anything they're else? looking for murder weapons. Some of the clothes and s- money wallets were stolen. From the campers. Okay. Also, the keys to Nil's motorcycle were stolen. But the interesting thing about that is the motorcycle remained where it was. The keys were stolen, but nobody stole the motorcycle. Okay, well, that's interesting. Now, we had mentioned, you had mentioned the girl was half naked. Did you find anything that suggested that perhaps she was unfortunately sexually assaulted? Me, personally, I didn't. From what research I did, said the authorities did really poor job of collecting Evidence. A lot of the DNA evidence okay. or any anything, unless you found something different. I, you know, I didn't. And I don't know. Sometimes 
one of the things we have to remember, just even in our research, that the police will withhold certain things, certain facts. So if, say, for example, she was, let's just say, I'm not saying she was, if she had been, unfortunately, sexually assaulted, that might have been something that they had kept under wraps. Mm-hmm. For obvious reasons, they don't want to shame or you know embarrass anybody, and or this is a little known fact. So if someone was to come forward later, they would say I also assaulted her in this manner, and then they would know. They know, yeah. So and there, you know, there's that. Now we kind of did cross uh, research on this because we were kind of trying to figure out who was gonna say what and when. <laughs> but I do remember reading something about a pillow that. Was like wrapped up, and went, which is weird. It was wrapped up by this elastic band or some sort. And looking at it, they actually kind of thought it was one of the girls's. And I'm just gonna just use the term that they I heard, a sanitation towel. But what they found later was, or maybe they had an indication, was not only was there blood on this towel, there was also semen on this towel. Which, you know, to me is like, you know, how did this get there? Kind of scenario, if it didn't belong to either one of the girls. And the other thing that I kind of read that I thought was very interesting and very poignant, I guess there was a situation with the shoes. Uh, yeah, I read something about the shoes that they were found. Like 250 meters or 500 meters. Again, Americans don't speak English. <laughs> I think I think they said 500 meters away from the campsite, which is a long ways. Right, and the curious thing about that is, is not, I mean, like you had mentioned earlier, there's conflicting reports. There was conflicting reports in a couple of the articles that I read, in which it was both boys' shoes that were taken, and then it was primarily Neil's shoes. But Neil's shoes in both ki- scenario, in both cases, his shoes were like kind of hidden, whereas Seppo's shoes were kind of just out in the open. So to me, this is very interesting. So, but anyways, so I mean, that was kind of like, hmm, 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 <laughs> scenario to yeah. me. So the police basically kind of screw up from the get-go. Yeah. You got your onlookers kind of flocking to the area because, again, there's no yeah. Google. You have reporters. You have people that are trying to help. You have the rest of the military that's trying to help. They're walking around, and searching. They probably don't have a uniform or understanding of how to properly search an area. They're just mm-hmm. looking. They're just looking. So do they ever find these things? Though No, the weapons were never found. Okay. Okay. Or, I mean... Maybe someone took it as a, tro- I mean, I don't <laughs> I'm probably wrong. So, okay. So, l- let's talk about kind of what the police do from here. It's my understanding that at this, this is such a horrific crime. And these kids are just babies on some level. Uh, and so, it's my understanding that the police actually ended up interviewing at least four thousand people and they even stake out the woods of the surrounding lake to to kind of see they can find you know uh, a perpetrator intending to, to commit a similar crime because they were actually having problems with somebody and we'll touch base on him killing people at lakes so they actually you know 
and they're hiding in the bushes, literally hiding in the bushes, and they come across at least 88 possible suspects, but they essentially get nothing. And over time, they do, through other means, gather potential suspects. And, you know, there is a solid number of them, but to me, there are three really interesting, not that I think that... I, I have one more than the other two that I really think had something to do with it. So um, for my part, my research uh, in regards to in regards to the suspects, my first suspect is a gentleman by the name of Penty Penty Cinnamon. Now Penty actually has a long history of violence and has been in and out of jail. And while he's in jail, he actually takes responsibilities for the murders and he kind of boasts that he does it to his fellow inmates sometime in prison in the mid-1960s. Now, they, the cops kind of kind of look into this, but, and, and part of what plays into his potential as a factor, he actually lived near where this happened. But the problem is, Doing the math, he would have been 14 years old at the time. Yeah. And, I mean, both Niels and Seppel were 18 years old. Yeah. And, granted, they were asleep and maybe suffering from a hangover, but I'm fairly certain. Very unlikely that he took on four individuals. Correct. Uh, older than him. I mean, at least somehow, two of them are Niels probably is out. So, I mean, in theory, it's possible that Niels could have it off. I mean, I, d- I don't know. But 14, and you know, we're, we're talking about somebody who's young, but maybe not smart enough not to leave any traces of evidence or something behind. Oh, yeah, of course. So, di- so he gets kind of dismissed. So the interesting uh, thing about this guy, um, I don't know if he wanted to play it out like he murdered him right. or what it was. He actually committed suicide in prison on the murder's anniversary. Okay. It was, yeah, on the anniversary of the Lake Bottom murders. You know, and I really think that it it blows my mind, but it shouldn't because murders bring out craziness in people. So, I mean, here he's claiming it, and then he kills himself. Did he leave a suicide note? I don't believe so. Okay. On the anniversary. So, I just... <laughs> just, he could have cl- just wanted the fame. Correct. After he was dead. Correct. Now, so he, in my mind, is probably the least likely. Uh, I feel, I feel the same way. But let's talk about a gentleman named Hans Asman. Cannot make up that, that name. What it's a, a legit <laughs> name. What an unfortunate name. Yes. Now, like Solomon, he Hans lived a couple again kilometers from the shores of Lake Bodum. And what makes him a really strong potential candidate is his own crazy-ass behavior. On the, on the morning of June 6, 1960, he shows up at a surgical hospital in Helensky with bloody clothes. And in addition to being wearing bloody clothing, his fingernails are black with dirt, and his behavior is ranging from nervous to aggression. And 
I mean, he's just kind of out there. He's acting out there. He's out of control to the point where he even pretends to be unconscious on, like, an examining table. And when the doctor goes to give him a shot, he's like, no, no. Like, he's, he, I don't know if the doctor thought he was faking or was going to give him a sedative or what have you. But, I mean, he's all up and down this morning. And just his behavior, his clothing, just everything about him strikes the hospital staff as very uncomfortable. This is awkward. We have this horrific murder. This guy's acting really weird. And then the hospital actually kind of does something super weird. He asks for like a cleaning solution to clean his clothes. And they didn't have, the hospital didn't have the specific cleaning solution he inquired about, but they did have gasoline, which they gave him Mm. to clean his clothes. That's strange. Okay. Now, they do report him in his filthy clothes and dirty fingernails to the police. And after a brief questioning, the police choose not to pursue Asman any further, despite many other red flags, okay? One of them being he does actually, he did at the time, match the description. He had long blonde hair, which is what I think, some, but maybe the bird watchers. That's kids. the bird watchers. Yeah, they they saw a blonde man leaving the tent, and he and did have long blonde hair. Right, and he was wearing the clothes that the kids had des- described the person that they saw walking away from the camp. He w- his clothes that he was currently wearing matched that description as well. Mm-hmm. And then, interestingly enough, when a newspaper article that released the description of the kids. And the long blonde hair, Aspen goes and shaves off his head. Yeah. So I mean, why do you do that? I mean, unless you have sen- something to hide. Exactly. <laughs> but the police end up passing on him because supposedly at that time he had a solid alibi. Aspen, <laughs> Hans, he was actually having an affair, and reportedly he spent the night at his side chick's pad. Of the night of the murders, and supposedly there were other people there who stated that had he left the building, he would have had gone through this one way, and he would have been seen going through this one way. And on top of that, even her landlord gives a statement that I woke up at 6 o'clock, made some breakfast for them, woke them up at 9, everything was hunky-dory, no problem. Now, down the road, you know, because... One of the things about doing this research, you kind of want to kind of be as thorough as humanly possible. So, you know, I pull article after article after article. And one of the articles I read, and again, there's only one, that states that basically this alibi is bullshit. Everyone kind of recanted this, <laughs> this, um, their story, of a, this line of events. So, again, it's hard to believe. And plus, too, we're talking about a crime that literally happened 60 years ago. So either way, one of the doctors at the hospital in Helensky uh, goes on to write a book about how he really believes it was Asman who committed these murders because in addition to him acting the way that he was acting, there are several red flags just with him surrounding him alone 
For one, he was extremely abusive to his wife to the point where the man actually ends up beating her in public. And he gets arrested. He goes to jail for nine years, and eventually the wife leaves him. But this 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 asshole's twists of his lies pertaining to his life and other strange events just has this long, drawn-out story. This guy reportedly tells people that he used to be an SS officer, you know, for the goddamn Nazis. Uh, yeah, I be- uh, what I read, I think he said he was a uh, guard in Auschwitz. Correct. And he claimed that he fell in love with a Jewish girl and that when this relationship was discovered, he was supposedly sent to the front lines to fight the Soviets. And during this line of defense, he gets captured by the Soviets, and that's when he turns to KGB as an agent. He's like, I'll spy for you, supposedly. Or as the panda would say. (laughs) Allegedly. Correct. (laughs) But, okay, here's the deal. After he dies, his sister rolls up and says, look, he never worked as an SS officer because he was receiving a pension from Lafwafe, Lafwafe, Lafwafe. It's the goddamn Nazi Air Force. It's, I don't know, which is weird because there's actually an uh, airline with a similar name <laughs> to this day. But basically, she's saying he never was an SS officer. I don't even know where he gets this from. He worked for the air service of the goddamn Nazis. So, despite these conflicting stories and his own his history giving, you know, he is actually a suspect for a few other murders, in particularly two women in separate instances who were, in fact, camping. And it's interesting because, I mean, these kids were camping, yes. But the way that these murders play out vastly differ from the way the kids' murder out plays out. And I'm talking, supposedly, he attacks two separate women. So, supposedly, he must have been watching. And, I mean, it's one-on-one. It's supposedly it's him versus her. Yeah. And I recall, if I recall correctly, the police didn't believe that the suspect entered the tent with the teenagers, but they do believe that the suspect entered the tent with the two women and because they had to because the suspect with the two women pulled the women's bodies out and buried them. And again, there was no indication that the killer for the Bodum teenagers were going to bury these kids. So even though the similarity of the campsites is there, that's where the murder similarities end. So he, and then actually he's a suspect for another murder of a young lady who was riding her bike. So she wasn't even camping. And supposedly he were bragged or reported that, yes, my driver hit her. I'm like, you have a driver? Okay. <laughs> You're living on a pension. <laughs> so there's just a lot of conflicting information. If you don't mind me asking, was uh, what were the murder weapons on the other two cases? You know, that's a great question. I think knives were involved. Okay. I think knives were involved. But um, I didn't really look into those two other... Uh, but, I mean, it would be uh, an interesting twist of fate if he had both rock or a blunt object and a knife. Yeah. But, again, I mean, there's a whole book pointing the finger to him, and I have no doubt 
that the doctor included these additional murders. So, again, it, it just... And it's shocking that they didn't take this guy more seriously, to be honest. Yeah, with his priors and, I mean... Right, and they're... Matching the description. Right, and uh, his history with the violence with his own wife. So, I have more to add on to that guy if you don't have anything sure. else. So, going a little bit later, when they're trying to figure out who did it, they actually put Nils, our survivor, they put him under uh, hypnosis. They do the little watch. I'm not sure how they do hypnosis. Right. Um, but to to gather evidence, to see what... Further yeah. info he can divulge. Yeah, and they have the sketch artist that works with the police department there to sketch out the description of the man. So they put him under, they do the hypnosis, and the they draw a picture of the man that supposedly murdered him. Based on his description. M- m- yeah, b- based on his description. Okay. They, they got eyes, nose, lips, and you look at the picture separate and it's like you know it could be a lot of people but then you they compare it with picture of hans and it matches up very closely they look very similar to each other later on at the funeral of the kids they they took a picture of just the crowd and there was a uh, there was a man standing there that nobody could identify. Nobody knew who it was. In the crowd, they're like, we, we don't know. You know, they, they were looking at pictures later. We don't know who this guy is. And that guy's face matches up with Hans Aspen's face and the picture that they drew under hypnosis. However, in court, it got dismissed because um, they said that um, Nils' uh, head injuries affected his his ability to go under hypnosis and uh, properly remember the Right, because I think Neil's, I mean, the part of the reason why they put him under hypnosis is he said he couldn't remember too much. Yeah. Other than the, I think he said something to the effect of he was dressed in black with red eyes. Red eyes, yeah. But that's interesting that nobody rec- uh, recognized this guy at the funeral um, because, I, and then again, I'm just going to say I don't think Ass Man's our guy. But, you know, even the Golden State Killer, he showed up on community um, conversations. They would host, like, have a town hall meeting during the Golden State Killing days. The Golden State Killer showed up, and he's in one of the group pictures (laughs) as well. So it's, I mean, to me, that's very interesting. So, okay, yes. So that's Ass Man. That's Ass Man. And I'm like, <laughs> mm. There's a lot. There's a lot of evidence, and it has me right. Leaning. And like I said, the doctor put together a whole book. I don't recall the name of it right now. Basically, saying it was Hans. It was the former KBG spy Hans. <laughs> but the person I really think is more of a possible viable suspect is Carl Gilstrom. So let's talk about Carl. Well, we'll call him Gilstrom. Did you get his nickname? Uh, kiosk Man. The Kiosk Man. Yes. And why? Because Carl owned and operated a kiosk in Oida. Oida? Oida? <laughs> Saying it three times doesn't make it better. <laughs> All three of them are wrong. <laughs> 
Do you know the name of it? I don't. Okay. Well, either way, Carl is the bag is a seriously bad guy. He's a brutal man. He would beat his wife and children. He was a heavy drinker, and he was literally known to be hostile towards everybody, especially campers. In particularly, he would cut people's tents tents down just like they found the teenagers' tent when the police rolled Cutting up. Cutting the ropes. So Correct. Them. Now, I mean, that's just sight. That's just one little yeah. thing. Now, the man was, like I said, violent. If I didn't say that before, he was. He would throw rocks at people in the street. He would actually fire a shotgun at people on their mopeds. And he would hide razors in, razor blades, in apples to stop children from stealing them. I mean, who the fuck does that? I heard that. You know, you, you would think it would deter people from <laughs> going camping over there. <laughs> or, or trick-or-treating, yeah. you know, at his house or whatever. And supposedly it was common knowledge that Guildstrom would actually walk around with a knife in his boot and a piece of pipe in the other. Okay. Now, I also read that Guildstrom had been mentally ill ever since World War II and had even been institutionalized. Based on that, my assumption is, and this is an assumption because I wasn't able to find any confirmation, was that he probably served and suffered from post-traumatic stress, PSD. However, I mean, this does not necessarily excuse his behavior on any level, but he also, if nothing else, supposedly, allegedly, (laughs) confessed to killing these kids to several people in the area. And he confessed during times of being drunk and times of being sober. Now, while he may not have been mentally all there, he actually does a few curious things that doesn't help his case in terms of of (laughs) being being innocent. And one of them is right after the murders, he actually fills in a local well. And it's like, why are you filling in a well? Well, the theory is is that he did it to hide. I believe his son-in-law swore up and down that the weapons are inside that well. Correct. And the other thing that he was seen doing, and again, I only saw this in one of the articles that I read. He was seen laying down concrete. Okay. And the other thing is is that people did actually claim to have seen him walking away from the crime scene, but were really too afraid to tell the cops because this guy – was vindictive. Well, he was brutal. He was a bully, basically. Now, the police do actually look at him, but they barely look at him. A- and to some degree, there's legit reason. If he really did bury the evidence in the well, when the police searched his house, which they did do, they found no hard evidence to link him to the actual murders. And on top of all this, his wife swears that he was with her on the night and the morning of the murders. So basically, she provides him with an alibi. The police find nothing when they search his house. And, you know, they sadly don't follow up on the well idea. And if the concrete thing was a real thing, they didn't even look into that. Then, on top of everything else, if this, uh, and to me, he has all the red flags of potentially being the gay. Yeah. Because I think the other thing, too, 
Um, you had mentioned the hypnosis scenario. I think I recall Niels saying that it wasn't a rock, but it was more like a pipe. Uh, so a knife and a pipe. Yeah, kay? that would make sense. Which were the two things that Gilstrom stuffed in his boots. So, I mean, here you have that, and then you have this turning of the page, if you will. Nine years after the murders in 1969, Gilstrom confesses to a neighbor slash friend by the name of Borgi that he killed the teenagers. And Borgie tells him, if you did this, you best drown yourself or you'll spend the rest of your life in prison. And would you believe the very next day, Gildstrom goes down to Lake Bodum and he commits, he drowns himself. He, he commits suicide. Yeah. But the clincher is he leaves behind a suicide note taking responsibility for killing these teenagers. Okay? And then... So you have him saying, I did yeah, it. Yeah, everything falls into place. Right. Now, I don't know if it, the suicide consisted of where he stashed the weapons, which would have been the best thing he could have done. Like, th it's in the well. He do I don't know if he does that, because as far as I'm concerned, th they never even look in the well. Yeah, even I after his I death. I don't think they ever found the weapons. Correct. They never yeah, do. Yeah. But here is, I mean, this is where things get even crazier. On her deathbed, Gilstrom's wife confesses that she lied to the police about her husband's whereabouts, and she even admits that she truly believed that he did, in fact, kill them. So, again, here you have him saying, I did yeah. it. Here you have her saying he did it. I just really think this is a strong yeah. and very viable possibility. I think he threatened her. To lie to the police. He threatened exactly to kill her if she, she didn't cover up for him. Correct. And believe it or not, there is another book pointing the finger at Gilstrom. Like, he, he's the guy. Mm -hmm. He's your killer. But here, here's my issue. We're going to fast forward to 2004. Okay? Here's the big but. And... You know, I know I don't really talk about um, what I do or part of my job, but I do investigate fraud. And as that part of my job, you have to follow the evidence. And you can't ignore evidence. So I, I, we have a situation here that bruises, that bru that's, you know, bruises, I don't know, stirs, comes up, kicks up a firestone. <laughs> that is a better term. In 2004, the Finnish police decide to submit the evidence that they have for DNA uh, testing. And so they're rechecking the evidence. And two major pieces of evidence gets rechecked. The shoes that were found that belonged to Niels Gustafsson and the pillow case or what they thought was maybe potentially a sanitary towel here's the deal with Niels's shoes and then remember these were the ones that were supposedly kind of hidden yeah far away from the campsite correct these shoes contain blood splatters of the three dead teenagers and not one single drop of his blood is on them and this to me is huge yeah. 
why are your dead <laughs> friend's sh- blood on your shoes and not a and, and bear in mind we talked about how he had this gash, gash on, on his, his cheek to the point where his teeth are showing and then they run the pillow the sanitary napkin scenario they do find blood and sperm on the pillow but the sperm does not belong to either one of the boys so this pillow with some unknown person's sperm is situated at the scene of the crime. And I think, like I said it earlier, I think it was rolled up in some elastic band, which is very, very strange. Yeah, it's, it's a weird thing to do. Yes. With this blood-laden shoes evidence, because you can't ignore this. This is huge. Right, yeah. They develop a theory, and the theory gets fueled by a witness that comes forth 40 years later and says, hey, yeah, both Seppel and Niels were fishing at 2 o'clock in the morning, and they were drunk, and they came by my campsite, and as they were leaving, Niels was trying to get all confrontational and trying to lure Seppo into a fight. So you got your shoes. You have this witness saying this happened. The police theorize that Niels was booted from the tent and proceeds to get into a physical altercation with Seppo. Now, there is actually another kind of floating theory that Niels was wanting sex from his girlfriend, and when she turned him down, that's when uh, he gets triggered and this altercation between him and Seppo happens. Which is possible. I mean, she's only 15. It's, uh, It's a big step. Correct. And, I mean, she's about to turn 16, but either way, the point is, there's a theory that it's actually Seppo that punches him so hard, he's the reason why he has a dis- Niels has a dislocated jaw and potentially other bone fractures. At this point in time, they continue to theorize that as a result of this, you know, beating, this fight, this altercation, Niels must have gone back to the tent basically in a blind rage and literally just starts hacking away at them uh, using, like, the knife or a knife that they probably brought with him or potentially he had on his person and some sort of bludgeon object. Then, to obviously throw off suspicion, he inflicts these... I wouldn't constitute them as superficial because, I mean, if you got a gash to where your teeth are seen... It's bad. Pretty much. But I would say wounds you're going to survive... You understand? Mm -hmm. And then he's like, oh, shit, I got to, you know. At some point in time, he hides the shoes and he stages the rest of the crime scene. Now, one of the things I did not read that I do find very, very interesting is, like you said, had, had said earlier, they never find the murder weapons, weapon, weapons. And some of the stuff goes missing, okay? But sticking with the police, in addition to this, another witness comes forth to the police and tells them that they overheard, she overheard Nils bragging, or Nils told her that he killed his friends. So here they have a couple of witnesses come forth. Here they have this DNA evidence. And even when they bring him in, the police say 
that he tells them, he tells two detectives, two investigators, hey, what's done is done. I'll just get 15 years. So, I mean, to me, that sounds like a confession. So with all of this, in March of 2004, with their theory, the police arrest Niels, who by now is a retired bus driver. He's married with two kids. And, you know, he had moved on with his life. But they arrest him. And his case goes to trial on August 4, 2005. And it goes on for three months. Now, during the course of the trial, Niels's defense attorney, a lawyer, will argue that the murderers, the murders, were the work of at least one or two outsiders and that Niels was not capable of killing these his friends because of the extent of the injuries that he sustained and basically because he was drunk the night before. Mm-hmm. So, and, and to some degree, you know, when they find him, I mean, they do have a valid point. I mean, like I said, his gash on his cheek is so big, his teeth are showing, and the the smashing or the cracking of the back of his head was so severe that brain fluid was actually leaking from his nose. So, again, they go to court. The, the police bring up their theory. The attorney brings up her theory. And in the end, the police theory and the witnesses are not enough. On October 7, 2005, Niels is acquitted of all charges. And the court says, you don't have conclusive evidence and you failed to show that Niels had a motive because, again, we don't know what the motive was. And basically, too much time has passed yeah. for any yeah. of this to be credible, okay? Which I'm like, mm, you know. <laughs> and then he turns around, Niels turns around for his pain and suffering, his mental suffering. He sues the state of Finland, and gets awarded 44, almost 45,000 euros. And then he even tries to sue the Finland, uh, the Finnish newspapers for defamation of character because, of course, this is, like, huge. This is Finland's one of Finland's most unsolved mysteries, and yet here you have, you know, all these newspapers reporting on him, and he's you know, tries to sue them, but his case actually gets thrown out. So, all right. Okay. <laughs> well, so that is the Bowdoin Lake murders. So, a little on to business. Facebook, Facebook, Facebook. I have a Facebook page, and if you are interested or curious and like to join, send me a request. However, if you have a place that you would someday like to see where their dark corners are or have a specific murder, maybe even a camping murder, in mind, send me an email at where the dark corners are at gmail.com. Final thoughts, polar bear. Don't go camping in <laughs> Finland. <laughs> there, oh, the other thing. Final thought. There Actually, there was a legend that derived from that, and it turned into a Finnish boogeyman. Uh, yeah, if you go camping and you're a bad kid, the, the phantom of Lake Bodum will come and get you in the middle of the night. If you're a bad kid. If you're a bad kid. While camping with your family. Yeah, or your friends. Okay, all right. Because of the red eyes. The oh, right. unknown the, the black. figure, yeah. black black hood, and that's what they describe the boogeyman as. Okay, all right. So don't be bad. <laughs> Better watch out. Make good choices. <laughs> <laughs> so until next time, please remember: only the few can find the beauty in the darkness, which is why I 
Hope to meet you where the dark corners are.